take 43. Mark? Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Take 43 podcast. My name is Drew Williams. And I am Aaron Colborn. And what happened to the first 42 takes, Aaron? I was thinking about ice cream. Okay, <laughs> we have a very special guest on today, and I'm super excited to announce we have Graham Sheldon. He's an Emmy winner and two-time Telly Award winner. He resides in Southern California, where he works as a producer, writer, and cinematographer in the television and film industries. Throughout his career, he shot national television and feature film projects all around the world. We're super excited to have him on. Graham, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, man, thanks. Uh, it's nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you guys, too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks yeah. for coming on. Appreciate it. For we've sure. uh, we've been reviewing some of your work to talk about as well, so that's been pretty fun. Oh gosh, everyone always loves loves to hear that. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's been a day full of Mortal Kombat and, and uh, uh, Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, we watched a bunch of the the Jedi versus Sith stuff <laughs> and a bunch of the the science of Mortal Kombat stuff as well. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, some of the digital stuff uh, I've worked on. And then, yeah, and then I have a few features um, that are out there right now, too. But just all sorts of stuff. But I'm glad you guys saw those, too. Yeah, yeah. digital is a, a fun thing that I've been trying to wrap my head around lately, to be honest, just as a as a industry as a whole, you right, know, right. digital. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying to figure that out. And we'll get into that stuff, too. We'll get into, like, the nitty gritty of digital and the, you know, the nitty gritty of the, the full features and stuff, especially with the good Catholic being, you know, filmed around the area that I actually grew up in. That was that was really cool to to hear about that when we talked about that last week. I kind of want to get into right off the bat, you know, kind of get to know you a little bit more and let the listener know who you are. Um, you know, what kind of inspired you uh, right off the bat to get into this field? Was it like a media or a life event? Was it in the family? Kind of how did this whole thing start for you? Yeah, I mean, this is honestly a pretty easy answer for me. It's my uh, my father, Lee Sheldon, was is a producer writer, um, but he some of his titles are Star Trek: Next Generation, Charlie's Angels, Walking Tall, so a bunch of really huge titles. Oh wow! Um, especially in this, I'd say late seventies, maybe eighties, um, maybe early nineties as well. Um, and then he sort of moved on into video games after that. So I mean, I grew up, you know around entertainment constantly. I mean, I was watching Lawrence of Arabia when I was like eight years old and thinking, yeah, this is pretty cool, you know? And I never had that question, would someone pay me to do this? Because I always had that in my family. It was always pretty clear that yes, this could be a paying occupation. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be a doctor. Wonderful professions though those are, I was never pushed in any one specific direction. So, yeah, that's sort of where my early interest in entertainment came from, very much a family thing. Huh, that's pretty cool. So I'd be curious then, like once, you know, it was in your family, you kind of thought that might be what you were going to do. What were some of the what were some of the early gigs that you did? Oh, my gosh. Just blast from the past. Yeah. I must have been 13. Oh, wow. And I did the voice of Uncle Jake's nephew on a game called Dark Side of the Moon, which was like a... <laughs> point and click adventure Rad. i don't know if you guys ever played any game like mist yeah. like early mist it's yeah, exactly yeah. like that sure yeah and i still remember my line it was like don't go uncle jake don't go you know <laughs> and i recorded like 32 takes of that and i was maybe i was younger than 13 it must have been maybe 11 or so and i was just sort of hooked i was so scared you know yeah. my like voice was quivery on like the first three takes and everything because i just wanted to do so great you know for my dad and everything but yeah, that was probably my first 
uh, real entertainment job, I guess. That's amazing. So that is a quick step just into producing from there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just a quick, quick hop. Uh, no, I, you know, I went to, um, uh, Indiana university, uh, did a, a lot of projects there. And then my first job out of IU was, I actually went to an open Craigslist call for a quote, travel host slash producer. And um, I was able to read a teleprompter, which is a little strange. And I got the job because of that. And I still remember one of the initial interview questions was, uh, do you know anything about fashion? We need somebody to go to New York Fashion Week and film something. And I just seen Devil Wears Prada, if you've seen that film. And I'm like, I kind of know fashion. (laughs) Yeah, more or less. Yeah, Yeah, it's the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Look, it's not a it's not a lie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Um, yeah. And just I've been working freelance, I guess, for a little over a decade now since then. But I was very lucky, you know. I guess my first real job out of college was being the guy outside of Target who bugs you for money for various causes. Right. You know, these people. (laughs) Oh, so just like being a producer. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, yeah. I mean, essentially, uh, it's certainly a sales role, but I was like raising money for puppies outside of Target for about three months. And that's when I got that sort of key uh, audition, interview, whatever you want to call it. And then I've just been working in television, video games, film, commercials, basically since then. Yeah. Very lucky. Very cool. I want to backtrack a little bit and touch on Indiana University a little bit, just simply because you know how small that area is. Did you grow up in that area or did you just kind of make your way out for college? And just what was your experience like there? Because I know what my experience was like, but did you have an amazing experience going to school there and getting that telecom degree? Yeah, you know, so it it actually sort of stemmed out of a bit of a rebelliousness, I would say. I, I I was like, I'm going wherever, you know, I'm going wherever I want. I don't want to go to school in California. I don't want to go to whatever, quote unquote, a traditional film school is. Right. And the other thing was, as I was sort of looking at schools and I was doing those initial interviews, I was very cocky at that age. And I'm like, (laughs) I already know all this anyway. Sure. And so the biggest thing I was looking for is, are you going to let me like have cameras to use? And (laughs) Indiana University was the first uh, institution, which is like you can get them you know, sophomore year, you can freshman year, you can yep. check out cameras really early. And I'd had multiple schools tell me you cannot touch the equipment until your junior year. Right. And if you get kind of in my mindset, I already had read a lot of books. I had been watching all of the quote unquote classics for years and years and years prior to university. I already figured, look, I just need the tools. Right. And I'm going to just figure it out. Right. Um, you know, again, learned much more than you just need a camera and you can go. But yeah, my time at IU was incredibly positive. While I was there, I didn't really expect I would be working with as many of my classmates now Hmm. uh, as I am. But I work with IU people all of the time. (laughs) And I don't know why that is. There's just something about that community, that just tight knit network that IU creates that stuck with me Hmm. to this day. That's incredible to hear because I unfortunately have had the opposite effect where I I, I made a lot of yeah, I've made a lot of really good friends and there's a lot of talented people there and I can still keep up with them. But we don't live in the same area. Maybe that's just because I'm in Salt Lake or, you know, sometimes when you live around Indiana and you grew up in the Midwest, you tend to stay 
stay there after college, you know. So I like to hear that, and that's really cool. So if you need another Indiana University graduate, <laughs> then let me know. I would love to help you out. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you you know at least one now. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, we'll figure it out. Post-recording, <laughs> we'll go shoot something. Absolutely. That would be great. And I think you're right about the uh, rental of gear. I think all it required you to be in was one class, and whether that was freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior year, I think you had access to that equipment. So it's funny that you took advantage of that because I, I remember looking into that as well. Yeah, you know, I, I do remember, though, I think my first camera I purchased was a Canon XL2 while I was oh, at yeah. IU, so that probably dates me a little bit. But what a cool-looking camera, if you it, remember, Darren. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was actually one of the first cameras that I shot on. When I was doing wedding videos way back in the day, it was a XL2 was, the, was kind of the first, yeah. like, like a pro-ish camera that I that I used, yeah. It was it was a cool looking camera. <laughs> it was very cool looking, yeah. yeah. I, it, back when like beyond quality of image, the thing I cared about most was like, does it look cool when I'm filming with it? Yeah, is, is, XL2, does it look like a, a Sony Handycam or does it look like a real camera? And it looked like a real camera. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just like now when we're like, oh, we put a matte box matte on box. something. We're professional, right, right. professional. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say it. I was like, you know, as long as it has a matte box, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> so so after uh, IU, um, I mean, you went to a bunch of different things. You did the voice acting. And then since then, you've done producing and uh, cinematography. What was the first? Did you get into cinematography first or did you go to producing first or kind of what was that like? Yeah, I uh, not to hop back for a second, but I didn't get into voice acting. I was doing travel hosting oh, sort of oh, right at okay. right after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to, to be clear there. So, um, I mean, the journey was sort of uh, I, I I worked on the travel side for a few years. Then I was at an external company working contract for electronic arts. So I worked on the last SimCity game. I think it's still the last 2014 as an associate producer. I also worked on the Command and Conquer compilation set. If you guys are, are gamers at all, but a little bit, I know. And then, it, yeah, cool. And then, yeah, I stayed freelance basically until now. I do have a production company, Stand Up Eight Productions, that I run with my wife. You know, it's an LLC, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I, I've had a sort of freelance slash working things through our company career. Uh, yeah, basically for years and years and years now. I don't know if that answers your question, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> no, well, I guess sure. I guess I guess my my question more is out of, you know, directing and producing and oh, okay. hosting kind of what's your what's your favorite thing? Which one did you get into first? Which one do you prefer? Ooh, that's a tough question. So I guess my most common hyphen now is producer director of photography, producer hyphen director of photography. So it's gotcha. a little bit of a weird job role and not everyone uh has the imagination for that to be I'll quite bet. honest yeah i'm sure yeah. yeah not i mean i'm talking external client perspective um yeah for the most part some people just know me as a dp some people just know me as a producer but i mean i've been producing things my entire life and small business owners owners of small production companies 100 percent get the producer dp hyphen mm. but as you move into more traditional television traditional commercial traditional film that's a little more rare. If that You're kind of yeah, separate that, jobs. Yeah, yeah, but that's my preferred job role, cool. uh, absolutely. And I've I've worked in every possible combination of camera department or producing side stuff. That's yeah. Rad, yeah. So yeah, you've kind of worn a lot of different hats. What's your favorite part of the whole process? Is it is it being a producer? I guess what what's your favorite role? I should ask. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky to put a a title on uh, you know to kind of nail it down because as a on the documentary side, a producer is always very much the director as well. 
So it also is sort of encompassing of being a director on the digital, on the feature side, I am rarely a director because often it's such a large scale project uh, that that's just too many hats to sure. wear, right? right? And when you are a producer DP, you depend very much on your crew around you, especially the first AD role too, because it does take a little bit of objectivity out of it because as a producer, I'm a very clear camera department favorite, right? So right. the negotiations about what camera to shoot on goes a little like this. Can I have an area left? Yeah, okay. Um, you know. <laughs> right. And <laughs> sometimes, yeah, please. And then I sort of green, green light that option from the producing side of it. But sometimes there is some benefit to having a producing team that is separate from the camera side to recognize when the spend may not be warranted. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, my favorite thing is when I'm producing and DPing something. To that's be quite cool. honest, that's the answer. No, yeah. that's 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 very cool. Yeah, and if you're not the DP, I bet the DP is very happy that you're the producer because a lot of that money is going towards that camera department, so that's nice. <laughs> and it's not just the money, it's the understanding right. of the unique role that a DP has. Totally. And and look, there's it's a very much an art as a producer putting the money on the screen, right? Because there's yeah. there's a difference between having hand rolled sushi on set every day at Crafty and getting a specific type of light that influences the look of the entire set for whatever reason. So yep. there's an advantage there of, of wearing both those hats. You know, and I'm not the only one. Reed Morano is a famous example, another producer DP. Uh, right. Yeah. No, that's really cool. And yeah, I would I would think that that's just only helping with the quality of the image. And from the lens to the camera to the lighting setup, just having that knowledge and being able to, to allocate those dollars in the right place uh, for the right reasons is, is absolutely huge. Yeah. And it's tricky to take advantage of me, too, on the budgeting side, because I know what right. a technocrane costs per day in every city in America. So you can't be <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> right. You're, you're, you're more willing to do that stuff, but also harder to fool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. The, an articulating arm is between 95 to 150 bucks. It's not 900. Right, right. <laughs> Um, so I think we'd like to talk about a few of your projects. There's one in particular that um, that kind of fascinates me because I, I recently just watched the miniseries on it. You did a documentary, I think, from uh, your IMDb. It looks like you, you were a producer and DP on a Chernobyl documentary. And I'm very, very curious kind of what that was like. How, you know, how did you get access to it? Was it difficult? And what was it even just like being in Chernobyl? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get questions about Chernobyl quite a bit, too, especially lately with the HBO series right. uh, coming out. But Chernobyl is such a fascinating and just terrifying place all at once. I mean, so I was probably 24 when I shot this and I went with two other people. And of course, we had fixers and things. And I mean, honestly, I think we made that documentary. It was an hour long documentary for probably 12,000 bucks. Oh, wow. Which is wow. not that's... a lot of money. That's like including travel to Ukraine. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> And it was in the uh, aftermath of Fukushima, if you I remember, remember that, that yeah. uh, event at all. Yeah. So I wanted to go there and sort of figure out like, well, you had been warning people about the dangers of radiation as an energy source since basically the late 80s. And then you to see this happen again uh, at Fukushima, what did that make you feel like? Right. So that was sort of the leading question that we asked all of the different col uh, collaborators on that. And then we also went back with uh, a gentleman who lived in Pripyat, which is the town right next to uh, the reactors. And we went back into his old apartment for the first time and 
you know, I think something it was decades and decades and decades. Right. And he kind of said, you know, told us where his furniture had been and everything was sort of destroyed. So, I mean, the biggest takeaway for me just visually from Chernobyl is you get there and all the roads are raised. Wow. Huh. And it's not that the roads are raised. All the topsoil was irradiated around the roads and that's all been removed. Right. And that's yeah. why all the roads look raised. And just the as you start literally digging up more and more facts about what Chernobyl is like now, it's just an incredibly terrifying place. Like the Red Forest right. is just incredibly scary. I mean, I stayed in a what amounts to a corrugated metal shed with the rest of the crew and a scientist had died of thyroid cancer and his room was in the same facility and they had just blocked it off. Wow. Um, because he had kept bringing going into the Red Forest and then bringing back irradiated material into his room. Instead of cleaning it, they just sealed up his room. Wow. It's very like Eastern Europe way, very European way of thinking of it, right? <laughs> yeah, just a, just a tomb now. Done, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, we're like, well, that building's probably done as a building. <laughs> yeah. Now. You know, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it made an absolute mark on me. And it's a, it was, it's a very scary place. Yeah. I don't, so when I see people reacting to the HBO show and going and like influencers going back there and taking photos of themselves on Instagram, yeah. never in a million years would I do that. Yeah, yeah no, it's terrifying. <laughs> because you know you know the facts and yeah. unfortunately they probably don't. And I would imagine a lot of research went into that before you you guys went over there. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we were there about two days and uh, I mean, they were long days and we exposed ourselves to about the same level of radiation that we got from the connecting flight from Amsterdam into mm. Kiev. Right. Um, so that gives you a sense of like not, not a high dangerous level anymore. Yeah, N not a high dangerous level. Um, I will say I stood about 100 feet from reactor four and held up a Geiger counter and it was just clicking all over the place. Oh, so, oh man, that's scary. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, so it wasn't a great feeling. There is, as we're learning now during the pandemic, right, there's like a level of terror that you never experience, but the unseen part of it is the scariest part, yeah, right? Sure. Right, yeah, sure. Right, absolutely. Same with radiation. Yeah. yeah, invisible monster, basically, right? It can't really smell it or see it, but, yeah, it's, but it's still happening. It's still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Dude, you know what's a pain sometimes? Hmm, do tell. Hauling huge lights onto set. Oh yeah, that's like the worst. Yeah, I've tried more compact lights, but they just don't cut it when it comes to rendering true color. Plus, they're never bright enough. Mm -hmm. Never. But one day, a buddy of mine from the snowboard industry asked me to check out these new lights called Lytra, oh. which promised to solve exactly that problem. They're compact, yet powerful, and with professional-grade color rendering. Nice. Nice. Now Lytra is pretty much all I ever bring to set. Compact, powerful, bicolor, RGB, Bluetooth controlled, rugged, waterproofed, you name it, Lytra's it. That's a whole bunch of stuff. That sounds great. So you should visit our Lytra link in the description below and receive 15% off your next order from Lytra.com. I promise you these lights will completely change your approach to photo and video lighting. All right, man, I'm going to hold you to it. So I kind of want to maybe switch gears a little bit and talk about maybe some gear. I'm like a, I'm a gear nerd and I know oh, Aaron, me too. Aaron is too. And as a DP, I think that's what, that's what we love. And, uh, I know that you're kind of hooked up with Zacuto and you're in with the Sigma line and those guys, I, I believe. So, you know, let's touch on some of your favorite gear and, and why, and maybe also your affiliations with Zacuto and Sigma, if there is an affiliation there. 
Yeah, I mean, they both have different uh, titles. I'm an ambassador, essentially, for okay. both Secudo. They're known for accessories, sure. right? Also a bunch of great EVFs. Uh, and then Sigma is, first and foremost, I think, known for their art line of lenses, now more known for their cine line of lenses, and now hopefully known for the Sigma FP camera, which is sort of brand brand new to the market. So cool. um, I'm an ambassador for both companies, and that's really the extent of the relationship. And that just means that I believe in that the in the products that they're making essentially and I use I was using all of their stuff anyway so it was sort of a natural transition yeah right. you know what I mean yeah. it, it made a lot of sense just be doing that in terms of gear as a whole I mean I have the whole Sigma Cine Prime set which I shoot with all the time um, and then I have a bunch of different rigs obviously from Zakuto for all sorts of different things but my, just my general thinking about equipment is you know be careful about in terms of your purchases, getting stuck in, in a specific route. You know what I mean? You sure. should have the most versatile thing on your shelf at any given time. If it's staying on your shelf for three months, I think you should eBay it like immediately. Right, That's like a, right. a little rule uh, I have. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, I am a bit of a gear nut. I do own probably way too much equipment for <laughs> what it is that I do. Um, and, you know, yeah, it, it is what it is. Anything specifically about gear? I mean, you could go a lot of different ways. I'm an ambassador for a couple different companies as well, but at your level of work and what you do, does that mean that you are getting to rent these Prime sets or and the Sigma line, the Cine sets for free? Do you just call your Zacuto guy and tell him what you need and that doesn't come out of the budget uh, as a producer uh, or all the above or kind of half and half? Kind of how does that work at your level of work? Yeah, I mean, in generalities, it's about finding collaborations that make sense for both companies on the marketing side, right? right. So it's it, it varies extensively. I mean, I'm not the only one that loves Sigma Cine Primes, for example. So they just shot the new Top Gun movie on the Sigma Cine Primes. Yeah. So, it, I mean, they're... There's sort of they're blowing up right now. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I love the Sigma FP as a camera. So that's really easy uh, integration as well, too. So, yes, there's absolutely a loner aspect with their equipment for sure. Yeah. But beyond that, there's a feedback element, too, that I think most people lose sight of is when you get a new piece of equipment from a brand, it's likely gone through someone like you, Drew or me um, first and i've tried to break it in as many possible ways i'm not going to name the brand of course not but yeah. i mean i had a tripod very early on a cinema type tripod and i would constantly destroy it i took it to <laughs> switzerland destroyed it in the alps they were like okay and then i would draw on their their cad drawing circles i'm like this broke this broke this broke and they would go back to the drawing board and they'd come out with a new iteration of those sticks and that's the most valuable part of a brand relationship for me personally, is getting to have a say in what the next thing is. Right. Um, and that's not an ego thing. That's a me not wanting the thing to break when I'm on the side of a mountain. Right. right. And you're helping other creatives out as well, right? Other DPs. You're saving them. Ideally. That. Yeah, hopefully, right? That's the idea. No, I was always just curious at that level of work, you know, because... I, I know what that's like down here and your R&D, right? You're just developing it and you're giving back feedback. I was just kind of curious about that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's essentially that's essentially it. And, and sometimes it's even before the it's very much in the research part of it. They say, do you think there's a need for X in the industry? And sometimes, not all the time, I and my fellow uh, ambassadors are a part of that conversation. Yeah. So 
I mean, yeah, I don't know if the dynamic changes much in terms of the scale of the project. Very often it's like we have more of one thing or less of a thing. Mm. Like I just worked with Small HD on our last feature, So Cold the River, and we had something like five Small HD monitors on that film. And they were very interested because they, they're out of Cary, North Carolina. They're a, right. you know, a smaller company. They're big in the monitor space, but they love hearing how their products are being used. And it's just that one-to-one -one connection yeah. right, between the manufacturer and the filmmaker. Um, if just, we're going to put a bow maybe on the ambassador thing, the sponsorship thing as a whole, um, you just need to be careful that you aren't pigeonholing yourself and your career into using a specific type of product, right? Yeah. Because the reason to use a piece of gear should be defined by the story you're telling, not by a contract. So I'm always very careful that any brands I work with that I believe in what they're making and that it makes sense for the stories that I'm currently telling or planning to tell. So that's just a key consideration most people miss for some reason. No, I think that's really important to know. Let me ask you this. I understand cameras and, and lights and lenses for that choice. Would a monitor affect that choice? Yeah, 100%. So everyone handles color science in terms of monitors very differently. Everyone handles the build quality. Can it survive being, I don't know why we're using the Alps as an example all the time, but can it survive being high up on the side of a mountain? And also, do you feel the confidence to light a scene because of what you see in the monitor mm. is actually a big thing, right? right? Because how many of us have had a eh, monitor, gone into post and been like, that's not what I did. Yeah, that's not <laughs> what <laughs> that was supposed to look like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hashtag Red Dragon. Uh, yeah. or, or Red Raven. Red, Red Raven. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah we had an issue on, on the last short that, that we did where... Um, we were doing some camera tests and we were using the monitor and we're like, it looks good there. And luckily we were doing tests, you know, preparing ahead of time. But once we brought it into, into editing and tried to do some coloring, we are like, that is not what we thought that looked like. So luckily we were able to kind of recalibrate, uh, <laughs> and yeah, figure it out. Reset but, a little bit. But I was curious about your work with, uh, Cinema 5D. Are you using that gear and testing it and then doing reviews on it? Is that what you're doing as a writer or do you have another affiliation yeah. with that? No, so I'm a writer with Cinema 5D. I have been for about three years. And if you're not familiar with Cinema 5D, it's a blog that covers cinema technology. And really for the same reasons that I work closely with some, not all manufacturers, is that I care very much about the conversation around technology. And it's something I'm interested in anyway. And um, look, I'm not always on set. So it's a way to sort of stay in the conversation, even when I'm not shooting, you know, a thing, whatever that thing is. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of Cinema 5D. If you haven't checked it out recently, I mean, we spend a lot of time reviewing technology. We do a lot of industry discussions, things, things like that. But also the whole, not the whole, I should say, but the majority of the people that write for Cinema 5D are European based. Yeah. And I've become fast friends with them, um, with those folks over the years. And it's great to have that perspective on what the European market looks like from a cinematographer uh, perspective and and uh, and a producing perspective as well so that's been that has a that gives me a connection to europe that i don't think i would ha otherwise have right sure to be honest yeah um but yeah i review technology for the same reasons that i i would try out any gadget is can i break this thing can this be optimized and there's a quick word on reviews that when i'm reviewing a product and there's, I find a disastrous thing about it. I always contact the manufacturer first and say, is this a thing that can be fixed in firmware? Is this a thing that can be a hardware fix that's easy? Because I'm never in the business of calling people out uh, on their mistake.
you know. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about the the creative that creative side of things a little bit. You know, we have the equipment but we want to perform a specific job for what it is we're trying to create. Right. I'm less gear junkie, more um, concerned about story and stuff like that. So I like talking about the the story and the creative side of things. One of the, the bigger recent projects you've had is a good Catholic. Um, and so I'm curious about that. I watched a trailer for it. Um, it has, you know, Danny Glover in it. Uh, and it, it was shot uh, near, near or in your guys's hometown, something like that. Uh, is that something you tell us about how that came about and would you consider it like something of a passion project? Yeah, so Good Catholic was my uh, first feature. Since then, I, I've had Dry Blood, So Cold, The River, The Right Girls, so a few, a few uh, Miss White Light, a few other ones. But Good Catholic, I think, stands out because it, it, it was shot, not my hometown, I grew up in California, but around Indiana University, which is this, obviously, place that I love, Bloomington, Indiana. And... Um, I basically, I came into that process near the latter stages of pre-production because I think the other producers, uh, Zach and, and uh, Spicer, John Armstrong, would readily admit this, that they were very new to sort of the nuts and bolts of production. And I had already worked in television for a number of years prior to that. So I came in late to the process to really be the person who executed the production side right. of the equation and just... I mean, you know, I did all the nuts and bolts producer things as well, but I also shot a majority of the exteriors in the movie myself with a PA on a Sunday, you know, just on the, oh. the seventh, the, the an off day. Right. And then I shot a few exterior scenes in the movie uh, as well. So I wasn't the DP on that. It depends a little bit on the workload that I think I'm going to have if I can make that hyphen work. So I produced that one and then I shot all the second unit uh, cinematography on that as well. Okay. So. That was a great project. I think there's still a Danny Glover. No, it's called a Lethal Weapon Smoothie that's in Bloomington, Indiana at this in, uh, coffee shop called Soma right next Soma. door to the church that we huh. that we filmed. And yeah, so, I mean, it made a big impression on that town and made a big impression on, on me. And it is it a passion project? I mean, I think any indie film I make has to be a passion project right. because there just isn't the vast amount of at least upfront money to make this a purely cash play. <laughs> right, right. So there has to be a little bit of passion in it. Yeah. Um, and I love the story. Uh, Paul Schulberg, the writer director is fantastic. I've went on to make a, I've gone on to make a bunch of things with Paul as a collaborator and just a good group of people, good team. And it was just an enjoyable experience. So yeah, that's on Netflix right now. I think it's still on Netflix. It's very much on Amazon prime. Okay. okay. Uh, if not on, if I'm not on Netflix. Was so. the, uh, was the chapel that you shot those scenes in, was that the one on campus? The smaller one on that campus? A, it's the one right outside the sample gates on Kirkwood. I think it's called Trinity. Trinity. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, not the one on campus by the IMU. No. That was cool. It was just cool to see, uh, you know, some spots that were familiar to me. And uh, I remember seeing one of your photos. Uh, I think it was on Facebook The uh, of the West Baden Springs. Was that for the Good Catholic or were you shooting something else? Um, I shot a, a show there, a, a travel show in my early 20s there, and then I just recently finished up a film there as a cam slash drone slash underwater operator. So Very cool. Awesome. <laughs> different thing. But yeah, I just shot there. I love that property. Yeah, West Baden Springs Hotel. Yeah, it's a be beautiful area. That's just, that's just childhood right there. That's about, you know, five minutes from Paley where I grew up. So it was just, it was just cool to see that. You don't see a lot of big cameras running through that area. No, I think we had a conversation early on where we're like, okay, look, everyone needs to be super stealthy. People can't know we're filming this movie here. And I'm like, look, everybody knows yeah. we're <laughs> filming this movie. <laughs> and in fact, you, you should have just told someone because they probably don't know anything about permits and they would have just taken photos 
photos and put it in the local paper. So <laughs> they they did anyway. We made the local paper. <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> way ahead of our PR lineup. That's uh, hilarious. Rollout. What can you do? Yeah. No, that's great. What was that process like when Netflix purchased uh, the Good Catholic? Were you creating it and you already knew that was going to happen? Did did you have a viewing party and they loved it? What is how, what's that process look like? Yeah, so I get this question all the time. It's you know most people. I wouldn't say most people, but if you're lucky enough to execute on your film, you're sort of 60% of the way there, right? And it's sort of that remaining piece that everybody, not everyone, many people don't fully execute. And sort of my take on this is if you're making a film that no one sees, you're just sort of an artist shouting off into a void and that almost doesn't count. So you really got to nail that last bit of people actually seeing the project. So I'm going to speak in generalities. It's the case with most streaming people, most networks, things like that is kind of what I'm going to lay into right here. It's not just Netflix specific. So one, that movie was um, financed with private funding and then sold to Netflix. It wasn't a classic Netflix original in the sense that they handed us money. We made it. We knew it was going to go to Netflix. so yeah, if you've just finished your film, I, I also actually tend to work as a sales agent now with other people's indies because this has been an issue that I've seen over and over again and everyone has the same question that you just asked. So basically it's a little bit more than knowing the email of the people at the Netflixes, the Amazons, the Hulus to actually make the ask. It's knowing who is looking for the correct kind of content and keeping in mind that every two years, all of these executives at these uh, streaming companies change over. And that's just in generalities. They all move. They go to Apple TV as Apple TV starts up. So it's maintaining those relationships. And then as a sales agent on the indie side, I try to walk people through the legal process. I'm not a lawyer, but I can see red flags when there are red flags and just walk people through the deliverables side of it. Um, I think on Miss White Light, which is a movie uh, I'm just now finishing up with Judith Light and John Ortiz, the deliverables list is an Excel spreadsheet of about 75 different items that you need to execute as a filmmaker to go to a distributor. Right. So you have a few different options. Once you finish up your movie, you can go directly to streaming networks. You could go directly to distributors. There's probably 30-ish reputable independent distributors in North America. So it isn't a huge crowd. Um, And you just start asking. I mean, just saying, is this the right project for you? Luckily, I've been doing this long enough time. I'm able to leverage pre-existing relationships. There's also the idea of having a few projects that you're packaging together and bringing to a distributor and saying the tried and true thing of this movie's wonderful this movie maybe isn't as good. Would you take both movies? So there's every (laughs) type of negotiation that can occur on these uh, conversations. But in general, I recommend getting a sales agent for your film, not just because I work occasionally as a sales agent, but because if you haven't gone through the process, you're going to need somebody to help sort of guide that. Right. So yeah, in general, I hope that answers the question, but it sort of, it sort of varies. You can go a bunch of different ways. The biggest thing, though, is before you enter pre-production, understand where the audience might be. Right. Um, don't go make a 
Like, I'm going to get so many pandemic scripts. Oh, I'm sure. This thing. I'm sure. Right. Please don't send me a pandemic script. <laughs> Try to write something that has a market. It's, it's place, a thriller you know? about somebody that's stuck in their home uh, because of the pandemic and can't leave. Yeah, well, what a great idea, Aaron. Send me uh, uh, all 90 I'll pages. I'll write it up right now. Yeah. <laughs> I think I saw that yeah. it was called 28 Days Later. Right. Oh. <laughs> exactly. So just make something that there, you think there's a market for. Right. And if you're already doing that, then you're like, 70% of the way there. Right, right. Moving on to another project uh, that we were, as we were kind of researching you and, and looking at stuff, uh, Dry Blood uh, looked like a particularly fun project. That was scary. That trailer yeah. was <laughs> yeah. intense. Um, and it, so from what we could tell, it looks like you you acted in it as well as uh, or direct, was director of photography. <laughs> how, uh, how was that? Just talk, talk a little bit about that. So this was an experiment that worked out very well. Um, Clint Carney is the writer on that. He also did the VFX. He also stars in it. Uh, he also did the music. Wow. <laughs> I am the DP on it. I am a producer on it. Uh, and then I die. Well, I don't want to give it away. Whatever. I, I might die <laughs> Spoiler, um, at yeah. the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At the end of the film in a, in a particularly horrific way. This is a absolute quintessential low budget cabin in the woods feature that we were lucky enough to get national uh, and international distribution for. And it was made with a, pretty much a crew of 10. Wow. wow. Um, and look, you, this has to absolutely be a labor of love to do something like this. For sure. But the fact that, not to pat myself on the back, that we pulled this off, <laughs> I think I'm very pleased with how it, it, it ended up. Um, it's, it's a low budget horror film. And in terms of recoupment on initial investment, this is getting some of the best numbers out of any of the other features that I've made. And I don't know why that is. I guess there's a real group of fans out there that love low budget horror. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a I think there's a real audience yeah. for that for sure. I mean, we're we're kind of horror fans as well, and so yes. when we see something like that, we're like, yeah. That, I mean, it looks like a ton of fun for one thing. It looks like a ton of fun to make, also. <laughs> yeah, the, the makeup was the makeup stuck out to me uh, in the trailer. Like I said, I haven't seen it yet, but the the makeup. I mean, there's a couple of jump scares just within the trailer that that just were intense. Yeah, I mean, you, we, you know, um, Clint was really the guy for VFX. Sue Sinclair, shout out to her for doing sort of the practical side of the effects um, as well. I mean, the, when you have just an amazing VFX team, an amazing uh, practical makeup effects team, and you can pull off the gore side of it and make it somewhat believable... Uh, I think you're like almost there. And if the story is compelling, then you're you're in a good spot. But I'm just proud of that one because it was a crew of 10 and we made a movie. It's really it cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I'm actually <laughs> yeah. really excited to watch that. And I think you're right, though. There is an acceptance level in the horror genre of that A-B horror movie that they classify. And if a movie is bad and it's not a horror movie, it's just a bad movie. Whereas I think you know, sometimes a, a horror movie can can be that was fun or like that was good in its own way of, of this. The story was good. The VFX were good. So I'm really excited to check it out. I, it was just a blast to make. I think we shot Red Epic Dragon for the interiors and C500 Mark One with an Odyssey 7Q for the exteriors. I forget, honestly, why I made that decision. It seemed probably <laughs> to make sense to me uh, at the time. And I, I think we shot all Zeiss uh, zooms. Oh, cool. As well. Very cool. Very cool. That's always fun to hear. 
I always look for that information on IMDb, you know, camera aspects and things like that. And, and so it's always fun to hear someone talk about that. It's hard to find that stuff, too. I think IndieWire does a really good job of breaking down what stuff was shot on what cameras. So shout out to those guys. They do a good job with that. Awesome. Yeah. That's good to know. So in, in staying with, uh, before we move on to some of the other projects, and staying with with feature films, it uh, looks like uh, one of your most recent ones is, is Miss White Life with with Judith Light from from Who's the Boss, right? <laughs> well, yeah, or Transparent, yeah. I think is the, is the yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then John Ortiz, which was, he was just in Messiah, if you've seen Messiah on oh, Netflix. Oh, I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard about it. I've heard it's really good. Yeah. It is good. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, just tell us a little bit about that project. How did it come about and what was your experience with it? Yeah, so Miss White Light, I am co-executive producer, and this is an example of a job where I'm really brought into primarily handle the business side of the project. Everything from deliverables to sales to negotiations to account management, um, <laughs> which is a little nerdy, to payroll, to residuals, wow. to things like that. And I'm not actively filling out all the forms, but there is a real strategy to executing a perfect rollout to a independent feature. And that is my uh, primary role on Miss Whitelight. I can't talk too much about the distribution because it hasn't been made public, right. but there is some good news coming and people will get to see it. Good. Super cool. uh, hopefully theaters will be open then, but yeah, we'll work that out later. So let's go into digital a little bit. Okay. Like I said, we talked about that a little bit before, but... Uh, we watched the series The Science of Mortal Kombat, and not only did I grow up on Mortal Kombat, Aaron did as well. Curious to know if you did as well, so if that was part of like a childhood like fun project for you, and how did that job come about in general? You know, Was that an idea you had, or were you just hired for the concept, or what took place there? <laughs> yeah, so I love this project. I had just a complete ball. It's, it's Science of Mortal Kombat. It's on YouTube. Uh, check out, it's on the Because Science channel. So if you're doing some Googling, you can find it, find it all there. And this was a collaboration between Legendary Entertainment. Legendary Entertainment, I think, is known for Pacific Rim and um, uh, what else? Oh, the Dune movies coming out, if you're familiar oh, yeah. with the new, the yeah. So, yeah, a little, little bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, Lost in Space on Netflix, Carnival Row on Amazon. Yeah. Um, and they have some digital properties called Legendary Digital Networks, which is encompassing of Nerdist. So long story short, then that became a collaboration with Warner Brothers about the newly upcoming Mortal Kombat 11, which at the time hadn't been announced. And it's one of those projects where it's the type of NDA, which it's very scary. You don't want to be the person that announces Mortal Kombat 11, right. like accidentally. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. I was very scared about leaks for a few months. And I tried to do a lot to make sure that nothing came out about the game. Because I think we launched very close to when the game launched as well. Yeah, that okay. sounds right. Like, like within the week, something like that. So collaboration between legendary uh, Warner Brothers host Kyle Hill from Because Science was the main host. We brought on Alan Pan as the sort of science builder. And then the whole idea behind the series is if you took fatalities and crushing blows from the Mortal Kombat franchise into the world of real physics, what would happen? So we took, you know, ex-MMA uh, fighter CM Punk, um, ex-Olympian Daniel Cormier, 
to to punch a frozen face to see what yeah. would happen yeah. um, over the course of I think six episodes and millions and millions of views later. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, uh, awesome. We yeah. sort of figured stuff out one at a time. But there were multiple moments though where we were sitting there waiting for the experiment or during the experiment, thinking, "What is going to happen? Yeah. How do you produce something when you have no idea right. what the outcome is going to be?" So. You know, there's a healthy amount of of just uh, questions that are happening on set. And we're just like, I don't know what's going to happen. What do you think is going to happen? And then <laughs> yeah. something completely different <laughs> would happen. And then, of course, you know, safety was one of the main things around that. So whenever we were blowing something up or firing a spike through something, we all basically hit record on the cameras and then walked outside Ran. of the yeah. studio. Well, oh, you wow. even in the in the first episode, you guys even made a gag out of it. The, the guy that kept, keeps on coming in with the fire extinguisher, which worked really well. So being safe, but also having some fun with it. Yeah, you know, it's 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 digital. So we want to hit a really mass market with that stuff. We want to have a good time doing it. Um, and then also we want to make sure that the production value is high. So right. it feels like it's a legendary WB co-production. You know what I mean? Right. So it feels like that. But I got into that process very early. You know, I was part of all of the creative. Uh, I wrote many of the puns that made it into that, uh, you know, for better or for worse. So it was a collaboration really on the creative side between Kyle Hill and myself to okay. the host to pretty much uh, execute. And and yeah, that's one where I had the weird producer, director, DP right. uh, hy- hyphen. And I really, I really leaned on my first AD, Morgan Dameron, to tell me if what I was doing was terrible or not. Right. Sure. Like, like, a, like a good first AD will do. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Con- yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, so I'm curious then. So the, the concept, was it in place when you came on or did you did you help come up with that concept? Um, I think the concept initially was do something around science and Mortal Kombat. I mean, okay. I think so you honed it down a little bit had, maybe. That was it. I think it was that sentence. Huh. Yeah. I think that was what we had figured out prior prior and then maybe we'll do some BTS episodes. I think that was like right, right. it. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I was there through all of it, all the way through delivery, uh, through post. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Even commenting on some of the comments on YouTube. Huh. Being like, no, this is what we did. Kyle did an amazing job. He's funny. Um, yeah. I thought he did an excellent job. So kudos to Kyle. That was awesome. Oh, yeah. He's a good guy. I talk to him all the time. And yeah, everyone should check out. He's a new channel right now, actually. Simply Kyle Hill on YouTube. And he's doing a new series called The Facility, mm. um, which everyone should check out. So cool. Yeah, he's a good guy. We keep in touch all the time over uh, the old WhatsApp. Were there any technical challenges on the set? I know at one point when we saw the uppercut, you could hear the actual crew behind camera laugh. Oh, constantly. I mean, you have no idea what's going to happen during min- yeah, so that's one of the reasons why we kept a lot of the crew audio in and some of the crew reactions and the crew becomes part of the whole thing in, in one episode. Because it's very much like, should we just point these cameras at this thing and see what happens? I mean, we had <laughs> ideas about it. Right. But one thing we didn't want to do was take ideas that other people had had and just also execute. You know what I mean? So there wasn't a lot of research that could be done on if you freeze a human fa- face right. or at least a a uh, ballistics dummy analog, uh, what would happen? You just don't, you don't really know. And then if you hit it with a punching machine that's capable of untold PSI impact. Right. I mean, the biggest thing for me was just safety through all that. Obviously we had plexiglass in front of everything all the time, but no, the crew and I, I mean, there were multiple moments of the whole crew 
standing around all these monitors that we had on set just going what and watching the slow-mo playbacks uh yeah but we had no idea we had no idea which is exhilarating and terrifying at the same time yeah with well, that series yeah i mean i think one of the things with, with storytelling even in that regard is like you, i think you guys did a really good job with with getting a payoff so if you don't know exactly how these things going to work out and they could it could be kind of deflating if it's kind of like well that didn't do much so you guys did a good job of like turning it up to 11 when you needed to even if it wasn't you know feasible to happen by the science you still made sure you got kind of a good a good punch at the end right totally and a lot of that um what's going to happen is is built through editing as well some of it's script but really hats off to blue line based in bloomington indiana they're a post house out there kevin weaver i worked with on science and mortal combat mm -hmm. they we talked about like what's going to happen what's teases like in the moment teases like you see the punch right before then you see the punch wind up then you see the impact like just really building up the impact because at the end of the day you're executing on the experiment and it goes and it happens sure so we were just trying to like extend that out as much as possible and i can't obviously take complete credit for that i don't think kyle hill can either mythbusters <laughs> sort of is the personification of right. like replaying the thing multiple times so right, right. very mythbusters feeling yeah I don't mind that comparison either. So a, a similar project you had was the Jedi versus Sith project, which it was was that through kind of like the same partnership that uh, the, the Science of Mortal Combat was through, or is that a was it? Uh, that was also another Nerdist um, Nerdist Legendary production in association with Lucasfilm and Electronic Arts. Cool. Yeah. Um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, if. I mean, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but Lucasfilm cares very much with how you talk about Jedi's. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So Jedi versus Sith is basically the conceit is we take two cosplayers, one of which uh, Mylan is playing a new character from at the time Battlefront 2. Sure. Uh, and we take them to basically through NASA training. And within that, I'd always wanted to do a competition series. We've always seen things like American Ninja Warrior, et cetera, et cetera. So I built sort of Battlefront 2 themed, Star Wars themed competitions that had a NASA tie-in. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you got to wrap your head around a little bit. <laughs> and then like one of them is they have to put a TIE fighter together underwater, uh, action, like 50 feet underwater in a NASA training. Right. One is on top of a pole with a Nerf blaster yeah. shooting yeah. a yeah, we know, target. Yeah, things like that. So... It, that was the most fun part for me was try to make it an authentic competition rooted in NASA and Star Wars mythology right? and still just have a good time with it. And that's another collaboration. This was less science based. So Kyle didn't uh, have much to do with the script on this one. This is me, just me having diabolical ideas about right. what we could put these two, you know, these poor two uh, cosplayers through. And they were great sports about it. So. Yeah, it's very cool. So you shot it at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in, in Huntsville. Was that yeah. difficult to get access to? I mean, I guess maybe with, with names like Lucasfilm and, and, and stuff, like maybe not as hard. It wasn't that hard. Okay. I mean, honestly, they were they were all about it from like the first moment because, of course, they're Star Wars fans. Right, right? of course, so, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I made it very clear that we're not abusing this. We're not abusing the NASA name. We're right. going to. And they were involved in all of the competitions. I mm. said, is this possible? Is this something that doesn't feel NASA at all? Is this is this silly? And sometimes they would say, yes, this is silly. And I said, is there a way we can add some a real like NASA astronaut training to this? That's sort of how that centrifuge spinny um, trivia challenge 
became a thing because that's something that actual NASA astronauts right. uh, do. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that I love. I love that project. You know, more people honestly have seen science of of Mortal Kombat, but Jedi versus Sith. I I, I loved making it. I mean, it was just such a ridiculously fun project to yeah, shoot. Yeah, of course. And that yeah, comes across in the series. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're big Star Wars fans, so yeah, it's right up our alley for sure, too. Yeah, <laughs> that was really fun to watch, and it was cool to, just to see them go at it head-to-head, and and like he was saying, like, we're just, we're nerds, and I pl- I didn't spend, you know, hours and hours playing Battlefront 2 or anything, so I didn't know anything about Battlefront 2. Just kidding. <laughs> so <laughs> I was very familiar with the concept, and I think it's really cool that you got to work under that Lucasfilm and have that connection. Yeah, I mean, there's a little little geekiness that happens you have to play it cool on these phone calls and emails sure but when you see right. the at lucas film like even the name and the email thread you're just like ah please don't mess it up yeah, you know because real, you right? want you don't want to just say i love you i love you i love you in all caps but you just can't do that because that's not professional so you don't do that right and i'm glad you mentioned that because i was going to ask you you know are you a star wars fan in general or was this something you were pretty giddy about Oh, of course. And having stormtroopers there, too. I was just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I just I filmed we you know, we filmed probably 300 gigabytes of stormtrooper stuff that never made it in the show <laughs> just because I mean, you wanted to shoot it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you wanted to shoot it. Um, and you, just the integration between Star Wars and NASA, I think, is actually pretty effortless. It's just a it's just a great time. And I mean, primarily, I'm a Star Trek family because mm. of my father working on Star Trek Next Gen. But I do love Star Wars. So, yeah, I mean, who, who, who doesn't? Very cool. Yeah. No project really specifically, Graham, but I mean, unless you'd like to use an example, but what are just some general obstacles and challenges that you've had in just this field in general? Like something that's maybe reoccurring or something that you have feel like you've got down to a science? Pandemic aside, you know, that's <laughs> certainly an obstacle yeah. that we're all dealing with right now and there's really kind of no uh easy answer so that's like i mean that is the easy answer so like what's the obstacle right now to making content right it's the pandemic right right um pretending that the world is fully okay for a moment i mean i don't know producing is such an all-encompassing task i i think the thing that i um butt up against often is sort of the human element Right. It's the thing that it's trickiest to um, sort of figure out the future for. Do you know what I'm saying? Let me let me unpack that a little bit. So it's such a risky industry in terms of making a thing. And the money is there's so much money being spent in a tiny amount of time to execute on a thing. So one of the reasons that it's really hard to break into entertainment is because why should I take a risk on anyone else that I've never worked with before? And so we create these little bubbles of people and it makes breaking in very hard into the quote unquote traditional Hollywood, whatever that is. Right. So I'm constantly trying to break out of that bubble and find new people whenever I can. Um, and then just sort of getting buy-in from everyone on cruise is so key and collaborating in the right ways. This is something that I'm constantly involving with, constantly evolving with is on paper, the role of grip for example is sort of a blue collar role it's you know they do influence the image but uh getting them to be pumped about the story is something that i make a real effort Mm. to do even the first ac the second ac etc on and on down the uh traditional totem pole and i think there's probably a lesson in here for other people too creating content is 
try not to foster an atmosphere of just showing up and getting a paycheck. Right. Because I don't think good things come out of that. I think the joy that you feel from maybe watching Science of Mortal Kombat and hearing the crew giggle behind the camera is something that I'm constantly working to try to to try to foster. And, you know, I don't know if it's a obstacle per se, but it's something that I'm definitely trying to improve in myself. And the best producers that I work with are also trying to do some type of, of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. No, absolutely. I think that's that's really good to know. And from another end of that, I think that grip or that AC or that AD really appreciates that. Uh, it makes it feel more like a family, you know, on set and rather than a job. I always look up to a director or someone. We have a really good friend who's a really good director and has been doing that for a long time. He's an awesome AD as well. And he's really good at making sure everyone's on the same page and just making sure everyone feels like they're equally as important. And I think it reflects on set. Yeah. And he very much cares uh, that that people are having a good time too. You know, like we love making movies, you know, and like, yeah, there's a a get down to business part of it, but we're always like, and he's a very big part of this. Dave is his name. Uh, He he's, he's always very focused on like everybody having a good time. We, we having fun here. Cause I think the more fun you're having, like, I think in the end, the better things will turn out, you know? A hundred percent. And I'm sure we've all met this person, the person that thinks, that this production is active combat in Afghanistan. <laughs> right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, We've yeah. all met that person. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. is not the case. Like, just enjoy. No. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah, just have fun doing it. It's uh, easy to forget why we got into this industry, right? And it's to have fun and make fun stuff and make good stuff. So I think you're right. You know, we don't call that person a lot. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And I mean, I'm guilty of looking really intense, too, while I'm shooting, especially. I look right. like I'm going to murder someone. But that <laughs> isn't the truth, you know? And yeah. And there's these moments where I'm like in a helicopter and I'm trying to focus on something very specific and I need to, I just need to take a breath and I have to force myself to be like, you are in a helicopter in some beautiful place. Enjoy this moment. Right. And the fact I have to tell myself to do that is something I constantly struggle with. It's a very big deal. To, I mean, we all got into it because we, we love telling stories, we want to make movies, you know, uh, and so it, it's good to remember that all the time. Now, in terms of I'm, I'm curious if there's anybody in this industry from from when you were young to now even that you, you kind of look up to uh, somebody that you aspire to be like anybody you've maybe taken some cues from and, and how how you've approached your career. Is there anybody like that? Yeah, I mean, well, easy answers, I think, are Rachel Morrison, Reed Morano, my father, <laughs> you know, are <laughs> right, really right. Easy, e- easy answers um, of people that I look up to right now. I think we're in an interesting, oh, Bradford Young. I mean, oh, I, yeah, the, yeah. David Mullen, um, DP of uh, Mrs. Maisel, and uh, he shot some episodes of Westworld as well. Right. So I certainly have a list of people I look up to and hope, you know, fingers crossed my career ends up somewhat like them someday. But the truth is that I I do different things than them and they do different things from one another. So you kind of have to take what you can, you know, but you have to make your own sort of path, you know, I mean, absolutely. And the truth is even the industry now from when my father was doing this, I mean, he had five people to pitch to CBS, NBC. I mean, like the standard networks back then. 
And now is just such a golden age of being a content creator. There's just so many people to pitch a thing to. Yeah. It's just such a wonderful time to be making to be making this stuff. I just I'm just so pumped every day that I get to have this job, even if I have to remind myself I'm doing something cool right, every right. once in a while. <laughs> right. Sure. Just to be able to to go to work with a smile on our face. Sometimes you you hear about other people's jobs and not to compare, but again, I think it's just important to to remember why we got into this industry and to keep it fun. Well, and this is such a a good time to not be competitive too yeah with like other people in yeah. say your local market or in the industry as a whole it's like we're all in the same boat yeah everybody's sitting at home yeah recording their podcast you know <laughs> yep. what I'm saying? like nobody's yep. nobody's on a set right now um and that's kind of that's kind of neat so I've, t- I've been on several online panels recently um mostly for sigma um with other dps that normally i'd be like oh you know you know, peacocking or something. And I right. hope I don't do that. I'm trying not to do that. And, <laughs> and they're, but they're not doing it. I'm not doing it. We're just like happy to be speaking to somebody yeah. outside yeah. of quarantine. When, it's such a, yeah. such a collaborative uh, sort of thing that we do. Like we don't get to be around people. We don't get to talk to people about it. Like right. think you get, it's easy to get bummed out about it. Totally. And, and, and the DP role as a position is hard because there's not usually another DP on set. So I don't have anyone to really talk to who right. does the same thing that I do right. um, on a day to day basis. So I've just been enjoying talking to other folks like you guys lately. Yeah, no, it's just been great. I yeah. love it, man. And what's next for you? Anything that got put on hold? What are you looking forward to? All pandemic aside, <laughs> uh, what is next for Graham Sheldon? Oh my gosh. So I'm doing something very exciting that I can't talk about. Cool. Uh, I'm trying to think like, it's always like a, a navigate the uh, uh, non-disclosure right. territory. Of you, got it. you know, the thing I'm most excited about coming up is Miss White Light will eventually soon see the light of day. So that'll be another feature that everyone will get to see. The Right Girls um, is this documentary that I'm very pumped about that I uh, produced. Tim Wolfer is the director of that. And it's about... Uh, four trans women who join the migrant caravan to try to cross our southern border and they're embedded uh, with the migrant caravan. So that's just oh, an wow. absolutely insane journey. I mean, it feels like just such a wild rush, yeah, all the things right. that they go through. So that's coming out soon. Um, and then I may have another really fun project on the digital side that may or may not be coming up soon. Cool. cool. <laughs> that I'm excited about. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, cool. So I always like to leave the listener with a good piece of advice and you've given a ton of great advice this entire session. So if there's one thing, whether you're repeating it or not, what is one piece of advice for someone just getting into this industry or maybe struggling in this industry right now? Even let's just pretend it's here's some advice for pandemic time. And then maybe I'll give a little advice for post pandemic time. So the biggest thing right now that I've been trying to do is just actually find ways to make content and stay creative. Uh, my wife and I shot a national shoe commercial within 20 feet of our front door uh, over the course of about a week and a half. And the type of things we were dealing with was waiting for our neighbor's spot to be open to shoot in front of a cool antique bicycle. <laughs> um, and this was for a campaign for Merino shoes. And they're just they make great shoes. Um, and yeah, Rin and I were just shooting that together. And it it, it made me miss being on set, you know, but it also made me so happy to be making a thing. Yeah. And I just come off so cold the river. I mean, a crew of 70 people underwater scenes where there's a full train in that movie oh, wow. that we have for a sequence. And then, then it was just, you know, Ren and myself. And there was something so freeing about stripping away all the technology and just making 
a thing yeah within the limitations that we have now so keep shooting keep you know never lose the love that uh you and and folks out there have for just making stuff um and then yeah in terms of just general uh industry advice you know have a have a plan in mind you know i certainly have had five-year goals in the past but i've never been able to execute anywhere near a hundred percent on any of those but just recognize you have a trajectory and your crew and your career picks you to some extent but just bring the people around you with you on that journey because that's how all the big folks jj abrams steven spielberg they all work with the people that they met at indiana university or they met on smaller sets right right so just keep the people around you make them feel especially now make them feel important now because the truth is that i'm not hiring the kinds of crew right now that i normally would be check in with them don't make the people in your network feel like they're the people you call for jobs but check in them now because with the check in with them now because this is a weird time so yeah just help build everyone up around you because that that pays back in the end you know that shouldn't be the goal have a plan not an agenda right for sure for sure yeah keep them close and keep in contact that's great well, Graham, this has been awesome, man. Like, again, I met you through Scott at Lytra, and I'm really glad that we had this connection. As soon as I saw that you were a Indiana University Telecom graduate, I, I kind of got giddy. So I thought that was really fun. And we enjoyed watching your work and excited to check out more of your stuff. Yeah, and for sure. We really, really appreciate your time today. We so, do. We do. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, it's it's been a it's been a pleasure. I mean, honestly, it's just been nice to have someone to talk to right, right? now. So it, I really enjoyed it, guys. <laughs> you got it, man. Hey, thanks, Graham. Really appreciate it. That was amazing. Yeah. What a nice guy. You know, he's super talented. He brings a lot of good insight. It was just great to be able to talk to someone that's not you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I totally get that. I don't even like to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally kidding, man. But make sure you check Graham Sheldon out on YouTube. His digital content's amazing. It's The Science of Mortal Kombat and Jedi vs. Sith, which was really fun to watch and hear him talk about. Be sure to check out his feature films and upcoming feature films. That includes Dry Blood, The Good Catholic, and the upcoming film Miss White Light. Miss White Light, exactly. Yeah, no, it. I think that was really fun. Great insight, and it was a pleasure to have him on. Make sure you guys get onto iTunes and rate us five stars if you like what you're hearing and leave us a review. That helps us out a ton. Follow us on Spotify, and obviously check us out on Instagram, too. We'll have the links in the description. And if you guys want to, go ahead and hit us up with the contact button. Tell us how we're doing. Do you like it? Do you hate it? Do you love us? Do you hate us? Are we doing good? Are we doing bad? You know, whatever you want to say. Um, but thanks for tuning in. It's been a ton of fun. Stay safe, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>